Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of Wild Research Bites, which is brought to you by the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. My name is Olli and today I have a guest talking to us about trophic rewilding and how it can be used strategy to mitigate climate change. So welcome Joris Kromsik. Thank you Olli. All right, uh, maybe before we delve into the topic of rewilding, you can give a short introduction of yourself and what kind of research have you been doing before in terms of ecology? Okay, so um, my name is Joris, as you already said, and I am originally from the Netherlands, um, where I did my master's at Wageningen University uh, during the mid-90s, I believe it was. Um, and then after that, I did a PhD at Groningen University, still in the Netherlands, but a big part of that PhD was fieldwork in South Africa. Um, and uh, since that time, I've actually continued to work on South African systems quite quite a lot. And the background of that work is, is mostly, of most of my work is, uh, is centering around the ecology of larger mammals and how they shape ecosystems, let's say, in brief. And then focusing on African as well as European systems. And since 2011, I've been doing that at the, universe, at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences here in Umeå. And... Um, as a senior lecturer and associate professor. Okay, cool. And what kind of animals have you been working with? You said that so, both uh, in the north and in the south. I've been, indeed have been working with quite a diverse range of animals and uh, also linked to a, a couple of postdocs I've been doing after my PhD and before I, I came to Sweden. I, I worked in Poland for uh, for about two years and in Norway for also about two years. So I've worked from uh, anything from European bison to... Zebra, white rhino, elephants, red deer, lion, wolf, you name it. Yeah, cool. A whole range. <laughs> a whole also range. including carnivores as well. As Some carnivores. Work, exactly. Yeah, that yeah. sounds interesting. So uh, by the end of uh, last year, 2018, you and your colleagues released and published this paper published in uh, Philosophical Transactions B. And it's uh, titled Trophic Rewilding as a Climate Change Mitigation Strategy. What is the paper about? Yeah, so the paper is is about rewilding. Yeah, and what is rewilding? That's indeed one. Of, that's probably the hardest question that you will ask uh, <laughs> this morning. <laughs> it's actually, uh, I think, still every year papers appear about the, the basically discussing what is rewilding. So um, that's not necessarily hundred percent clear. It's it's pretty broadly defined in theory. So there's actually there's many different definitions of rewilding. Um, one of the, the initial definitions was, um, so this, this was one of the first papers that actually used the term rewilding, uh, I guess about 10 or 15 years ago, used the definition that it's about the restoration of missing ecological functions of lost megafauna. And megafauna is then being defined as basically as animals larger than 44 kilograms. And, right. wh- and why 44 kilograms? It's because 44 kilograms is the same as 100 pounds. So the actual uh, limit was 100 pounds. All right. Uh, and that's the definition of megafauna. So rewilding is about bringing back megafauna that's, uh, that's locally extinct or extinct to restore their ecological functions. That's the, the initial definition. And then there's a lot of discussion actually at the moment about what, what, uh, why is rewilding? Is rewilding something different as restoration, for example. That's, that's one of the biggest discussions. Some people suggest that rewilding is just a buzzword 
and actually just means uh, restoration or restoration ecology. Yeah, and then you can you can have discussions about that. But uh, yeah, to me, it, uh, it I I think it is slightly different, or or at least it's it's an important subset of of restoration that that I think deserves to have a separate name because it is specifically about restoring the roles of megafauna. But it's also depending again on who you talk to. It's not necessarily about. Um, restoring something in terms of bringing something back to previous states it's actually bringing back functions but then without necessarily a specific goal or, uh, or where you want to move to and the restoration ecology often has the, the connotation of restoring a certain predefined state because that's what you'd call restoring of course and and that's not necessarily the case with rewilding actually all right and uh, in your paper, you talk about trophic rewilding then. What is the difference between trophic rewilding and Pleistocene rewilding? Exactly. So Pleistocene rewilding is one often mentioned term. And that's, I think, at least how, that's how the concept of rewilding was initially uh, proposed. And this was very much focused on the fact that during the Pleistocene, so let's say up to 10,000 years ago, particularly during the later Pleistocene, so between 10 and 50,000 years ago, there, has been a, there have been massive extinctions of megafauna. Uh, so many of the continents, or I should say most continents except Africa, lost a majority of the large mammals that used to be there during that phase in time. And these Pleistocene extinctions caused, likely caused all kinds of uh, changes to, the, to, to natural systems. And Pleistocene rewilding is then about trying to restore the lost functions of these Pleistocene megafauna. So that includes uh, what many people would, would find quite crazy ideas like returning elephants to North America because elephants were part of the North American landscape during the late Pleistocene and they went extinct. And some people suggest if you want to restore ecosystems, for biodiversity or ecosystem functioning purposes, you need to bring back the roles of these extinct megafauna. That's Pleistocene rewilding. Uh, trophic rewilding is a more recent term, which, I mean, the word trophic means, uh, basically means foraging or eating. So it's about effects that animals have through their eating behavior. So trophic rewilding, again, is about restoring the role of megafauna to restoring the ecological functions of megafauna. Uh, and then they add the word trophic because most of the functions are related to them eating things, yeah. such as plants or each other. But it's not, it's not, um, it doesn't go into the extreme of Pleistocene rewilding. So it doesn't necessarily talk about bringing back elephants to North America. It, it talks much more about restoring the populations of existing large mammals. For example, building up again the populations of American bison in, in North America in regions where they used to occur but no longer occur. Or the same in Europe. For example, bringing back European bison across places in Europe. Yeah. Are there so, already some projects about uh, bringing back the European bison? Yeah, there are actually quite a lot of projects that, that focus on European bison restoration and, and introductions. Um, in countries like the Netherlands and Germany and France and Spain. All right. And historically, of course, also uh, in Eastern Europe, there have been a lot of introductions of bison. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Your uh, paper then uh, goes into talking more about the trophic rewilding and how animals uh, can have an influence on climate. And this is very interesting. And 
Can you maybe explain a little bit about what are the pathways through which different kinds of animals can influence the climate system? Yes, yeah, so we, we indeed wrote this paper and what we, we what we did first is we actually explored the different ways through through which animals we first defined actually the main processes that uh, are behind climate change. And these are some of the well-known ones such as uh, increases in greenhouse gas gases such as uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, but also methane. But another example of that is changes in albedo, so in land cover. Albedo is basically the reflection of sunlight that a certain surface has. Like if you would walk outside uh, during your fieldwork in South Africa, Oli, you know that if you go out with a, with a dark shirt, fully dressed in dark clothes, that you will end up... Uh, <laughs> More warm, yeah. Long, longing <laughs> for beer quite quickly. <laughs> But if you would wear like a completely white clothes, then of course you would feel a bit cooler. That's, yeah, that's basically yeah. albedo. Cool. So like this can manifest in, for example, snow cover, exactly. reflecting more solar light Good into point. the atmosphere. And so if we would walk outside now in Sweden, for you radio listeners, we uh, we still have a fully uh, a landscape fully covered in snow. And that's indeed reflecting lots of sunlight, so basically cooling. Um, yeah. And albedo is, is an, an important part of anthropogenic climate change because humans have been altering land covers massively as well, of course, either by planting trees or by removing trees uh, or by, for example, overgrazing, uh, which may lead to desertification, creating deserts, which also change the reflectance of, of sunlight. And, and this albedo effect is often ignored or at least it's discussed much less than the, the effects through increasing carbon. Okay. Um, so these are two of the main ways that, that the main drivers of, of uh, climate change. So what we started exploring is how do these large mammals, through their different um, behaviors, affect both these greenhouse gas emissions as well as the albedo of landscapes. Yeah, that's interesting. And also you gave an example of reindeer influencing the albedo. Exactly, yeah. So I mean, uh, basically what we discuss, we, we first summarize some main drivers through which large mammals influence greenhouse gases and albedo. And these, these main processes are firstly that they produce greenhouse gases themselves because they actually re release methane. We know that very well as humans. I mean, we do also do that uh, <laughs> on a regular basis. And animals, of course, also um, do that quite a lot. And then another process is by affecting fire regimes. And th this is um, by these megafauna eating plant material. They compete with fires over the fuel because that same plant material is actually the fuel load for fires. So herbivores can actually increase fire, but they can also reduce fire. So by doing that, influence the role that fire may have on greenhouse gases. The effects of fire may also lead to emission of carbon, for example. But they also influence the way fire changes landscapes in terms of trees and grasses and the balance in that in the landscape. So that actually then influences albedo. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, and another way is um, through herbivores influencing nutrient distributions, which is very much then also influencing the way that plants can take up carbon. Because if plants lack nutrients, they grow less fast. And in that way, they also might actually store less carbon. And how do animals then... Uh deposit nutrients or how do they influence the nutrients well they they uh, they deposit nutrients by depositing their uh, their dung in yeah. uh, across the landscape of course that's a, a main that dung and their urine that's a main mechanism through which they disperse nutrients and uh, the interesting thing with these nutrients is that these nutrient packages you could say is that they're very easily accessible to uh, microbes in the soil so they can very easily decompose the dung and make it available for plants again to, to grow. But you asked me about reindeer earlier. Yeah, yeah. I completely forgot about that, of course. Yeah, it was the example <laughs> of... Uh, That's an interesting example, yeah. indeed. 
and that's some, some work that actually has been done by uh, our neighboring our neighbors here in Umeå at Umeå University. They've actually worked already for quite many years on how reindeer shape vegetation in the tundra. And one of the things that they are showing is that reindeer, through their grazing and through their trampling, might shift tundras from um, a shrub-dominated state into a grass-dominated state. Okay. So they basically change the shrub tundra into a grassland steppe, you could say. They've shown that at least on a smaller scale. And what they've then did actually is they measured the albedo of these different states and they showed very clearly that the albedo of grassland steppes is um, higher than of shrub-dominated tundra. Which means a higher albedo means that it reflects more sun. So it actually causes a cooling effect. So they suggest with that work that if you have intense reindeer grazing, you might actually change the, the tundra from a, a system that has a warming effect into a system that has a cooling effect. Okay, that's well, fascinating. It's so very interesting, of course. So that that's, is an example of sort of a direct climate change mitigation benefit of, of reindeer husbandry in that sense. And then uh, relating to this point, you were also bringing up the example of Zimov's work in uh, Arctic Russia. Yeah, this is the bigger idea behind uh, Zimov's work, of course, indeed. Yeah. He's also talking about restoring the mammoth step by rewilding. And there's also some idea of trampling. Uh, do you know anything more about this? Yeah, so I mean, Zimov's vision is to uh, toward a so-called mammoth step. And the idea of the mammoth step was very much like what I explained for the reindeer just now, is that during the, let's say, before the massive extinctions that happened at the end of the Pleistocene, uh, there was a lot of wildlife on that tundra. So not just mammoths, but also uh, the reindeer that we already talked about earlier, but also species such as uh, wild horses, uh, musk oxen that we still have nowadays, and a couple of other species. And the idea uh, that Zimov has is the same as what I explained earlier for reindeer, is that because of the grazing and trampling effects of uh, megafauna, is that at that time, uh, the area was mostly a grass steppe, grass-dominated steppe. And after the extinction of these mammals, that grass-dominated steppe changed into a, shrub, a more shrub-dominated tundra. Yeah. Um, and there is actually also, there are some papers using... Uh, pollen data that suggest that such changes in vegetation might have indeed have occurred. Um, and then what they suggest is that has then an effect on, on the albedo. So um, that collapse of the megafauna uh, might have led to more shrubs leading to a warming effect. And the idea that Zimov now has is to actually restore abundant megafauna on these tundras to then convert the, the shrub-dominated tundra back into a grassy steppe again, which might not only increase the, the albedo, so reflecting more sunlight, but there's also some suggestion that these animals, by, by their trampling effects, they pack the snow during winter, and that this packed snow actually um, has an insulation effect uh, on the soil, and by doing that actually slows down the, the thawing of the permafrost. Okay, so preventing potentially the methane release. And then indeed preventing the methane release from the permafrost. Because this is one of the big issues in, current, in the current climate change debate as well, is that uh, the permafrost is actually disappearing. And by the melting of the permafrost, there's an enormous release of um, methane from that frozen uh, permafrost material. So yeah, this is like an example of in which rewilding, trophic rewilding could potentially have a major impact on the climate change mitigation exactly. arena. As long as you are able to do it at large enough scales. And that's yeah, that was the, the trick. Yeah. And yeah, this leads me to the next point that you now you have given like a lot of examples of how animals can influence climate system through carbon 
and albedo and nutrients and fire. What are the practical implications of this? What can be done to actually implement this trophic rewilding in terms of contributing to the mitigation of climate change? Mm. So some of the practical implications are, of course, firstly, the realization that these large mammals are an important driver of the ecosystem. And, and also may have important effects on how well that ecosystem behaves in terms of mitigating climate change. So that means that if you want ecosystems to mitigate climate change, and this is one of the actually the big goals at the moment. So uh, if you talk about climate change mitigation strate- strategies, a lot of these strategies actually focus on using ecosystems. I mean, one of the simple examples is tree planting. Everybody knows about uh, planting a tree to compensate for your flying behavior, for example. But this work in our paper suggests that large mammals might actually play an important role in making ecosystems more effective to actually mitigate that climate change. So that would mean, if that is indeed the case, um, that maybe these these large mammal introductions and conservation programs should be taken more seriously in climate change mitigation financing schemes, such as, for example, your carbon credit schemes, which are now none of that money is going actually to uh, to rewilding or restoration initiatives. So that's a very concrete example of f- where you could link the rewilding to, uh, to let's say, the, the politics of uh, climate change mitigation schemes. Yeah, that would be amazing to be able to choose when you buy a flight ticket to South Africa that you could compensate on the carbon dioxide emissions and put your money into rewilding instead of tree planting, for example. Yeah, or at least, or maybe in addition to, and, yeah. uh, and particularly not just because it looks nice, but actually because it makes it uh, contribution actually more effective. That's a very nice example, actually, on there's an increasing amount of work that shows that, that if you talk about tropical forests and um, because an important climate change mitigation strategy is the conservation and restoration of tropical forests. So planting tropical trees and restoring tropical rainforest because they store lots of carbon potentially. Um, and there is actually now a, quite a large number of papers that show that, um, of course, the, the trees in the tropical rainforest that store the most carbon are the trees with hardwood, so with very high wood density. Um, because these, well, if you have a very high wood density, that means you have a lot of carbon in your, in your wood. Uh, and these studies actually show that these tree species that have hardwood, for their dispersal and their survival, they actually depend on large mammals. And that is because these tree species have very large fruits. So there seems to be a relationship between the size of a fruit of a tree and the hard, the hardiness of the wood. And um, the larger the, the fruits you have, the more you depend on large mammals to disperse these fruits. So that basically gives you a direct connection between large mammal behavior and the amount of carbon that is stored in a, in a rainforest. Because if you have more large mammals, basically they facilitate the dispersal of your trees with your large fruits, which are your trees which store the most carbon. So that's, I think, a very nice example of where restoration of megafauna and tropical rainforest can help to make these forests more effective in storing carbon. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. In the last part of your paper, you also mentioned about potentially transforming the meat industry. Because you, in the beginning, you were talking about the methane emissions from wild animals and then domestic animals. What's the difference between the methane emissions between these two different groups? And how could rewilding contribute to changing the methane emissions also? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that comes out of the literature is that animals or these larger mammals, they differ widely in terms of uh, their potential methane emissions. So one of the big concerns in climate change discussions is the, the, the methane emissions of livestock 
particularly uh, cattle, emit quite large amounts of methane every year. And of course, um, that's the cattle that we that we use, um, that we eat, basically. Yeah. <laughs> a big proportion of, of the world um, eat lots of uh, beef. And that uh, and beef produces lots of methane. Uh, but what's interesting is that, uh, there's a, that there's a lot of wildlife species that hardly produce any methane. And, and one of the main differences is, is that between ruminants and non-ruminants, so that's a difference in, in digestive system. So ruminants are basically uh, plant-eating mammals that uh, eat, but then uh, re regurgitate their food and uh, ruminate on it. But non-ruminants don't do that. And, and non-ruminants are, for example, species like horses, uh, but also your rhinos and your elephants. And what seems to come out of the data quite clearly is that these non-ruminants produce hardly any methane compared with your ruminants. And what also is clear is that there is a body size effect. Your smaller ruminants uh, produce less methane. So what we suggest is that in theory, you could actually uh, change your consumption patterns as humans, firstly by starting to eat much less meat. But if you eat meat to uh, perhaps also go for species that produce less methane, which could be your... Um, your non-ruminant species. Examples of that are also pigs, for example. That's what we suggest, that's what we talk about a bit in terms of, let's say, um, more um, out-of-the-box future visions. Uh, you could also imagine when we talked about rewilding the, the, the Arctic and subarctic tundra areas to basically mitigate the thawing uh, permafrost and... Uh, and, and increase the albedo of the landscape. To be to do that, you need enormous populations of, of uh, megafauna in these areas. And these populations, of course, they you could you could imagine you you, you would use them. You would harvest a certain uh, proportion of them for your uh, meat consumption. Uh, so that would be an interesting alternative then um, for some of the industrial uh, meat markets that currently actually have a lot of environment negative impacts on environments. So. Are there any hindrances or challenges that could prevent this kind of wild uh, meat distribution? Yeah, that's of course a lot of um, there's a lot of potential hindrances. Because it's of course a very different view on um, the production and the use of meat, which of course would be um, very different from the current uh, industrial meat markets. So you would have to um, basically uh, fight that lobby, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> was a lot of um, issues around the use of wild meat on the market, uh, which is currently not treated in the same way as, as domestic meat, let's say. So, uh, yeah. so in that sense, it's a potential visual for the future. Yeah. An interesting example from South Africa where there's a big game industry which has been growing within the past 20 years. And in South Africa, you can access to wild meat also. Yeah, what is it about? How is the South African game industry different from, for example, Europe? Well, I guess it's different in its scale. So... Uh, South Africa is one of the, the countries that has invested quite a lot in, 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 um, in let's say, the game industry. Uh, so there's a variety of different, let's say, private game farms or game areas that get their income through different sources, which can vary from, uh, let's say, more classical ecotourism, so camera-based uh, tourism, to trophy hunting, uh, to also sometimes harvesting game to sell the meat uh, and and of course uh, several of the farms use a use a diversity of these different strategies if you want to call them to to get earn their income and because of that and this has been a very successful uh, uh, process in south africa over the last decades actually where the, where there is, has been a very strong rise of these um, farms or or areas um, that 
have changed actually, because many of them used to be uh, livestock farms, but they've changed their practice from livestock farming to earn, earning their money through a game. That's, and, and because of that, the, 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 the amount of wildlife in, the, in South Africa has uh, increased uh, massively from, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers. But the listeners can also find it from the paper then. They want can to go. find it in the paper. Yeah. And, I'm, and one of the, the drivers of this change over the last decades is that the legislation was changed where now landowners can actually own the wildlife on their land and because of that have the right to um, to use it and, and make money with it. Yeah, cool. I think uh, this kind of wraps up our discussion and thank you so much for coming and joining me to talk about this fascinating topic. And do you have any famous last words or any way forward? Uh, are you still working on similar issues, uh, similar topics? Well, we, uh, we of course have a big project in South Africa at the moment where we look at uh, at these issues, for example, you, Oli, are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, of course looking at um, at the role of some of the wildlife species, particularly white rhino, uh, and uh, in terms of shaping uh, these climate change drivers. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to the outcome of your thesis. Uh, yeah, me one. as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we will probably have an episode on that as well in the future. But we, uh, yeah, we look forward to actually uh, building on that and. and uh, and expanding the program along these lines. So. Yeah, and there are a lot of fascinating questions to answer and look at. So, sure. all right, thank you so much. Yeah, please come and comment on this episode on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also send us an email. And I'm also going to put the link to the paper in the description of this episode. Mm-hmm.